You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. The sermon text for this morning is Mark 6, 21 through 29. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and gave it to and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother when his disciples heard of it they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb this is the word of the lord thanks be to god you may be seated so take your bibles and turn with me to mark 6 mark chapter 6 it's a joy to be here i'm always delighted to be able to come and worship with you this is my second favorite church in all the world, so, um, and also my second favorite Redeemer Church. A couple years ago, I test drove a number of new cars. I had never done that before, so I went into the dealership. We were looking for a car. We wanted something reliable, and so I was talking to the salesman, and I mentioned a couple of the features that I'd like in a car, and he looked at me a little puzzled as I went through the list of things I'd like because apparently every feature I'd asked for had been standard in cars for like the last five or ten years. So a lot had changed since 2013, which was when my newest car was manufactured. So I, I got in these cars and drove them, and it really I was just amazed at all of the new features, things I didn't even think to ask for, things that were designed to make my life easier as a driver. Life is hard, isn't it? There are hard days at work and hard nights at home. There are some very hard relationships we deal with. There are hard memories that linger, hard challenges waiting for us just around the corner. And because life is hard, we're constantly on the lookout for things that will make life easier. Right? This is what drives so many inventions. Like some person at some point said, it would be easier if we didn't have to build a fire every time we went to cook our food, and so they developed, they invented the stove. I mean, air conditioning, right? It's easier to go to sleep if you're not sweating, and so air conditioning was invented. It's easier to drive if you can just press a button and your car stays at the same speed. Right? We, we want to add things to our life that make life easier, and we want to remove the things that make life more challenging. Does following Jesus make life easier? I think it's an important question to ask whether or not you're a Christian. 
If you're here and you're simply investigating the claims of Christianity, you probably want to know if becoming a Christian makes your life easier. If you are a Christian and you're going through some really hard times, it's easy to grow disillusioned if you think following Jesus should be making your life easier, but your life doesn't seem to be easier. So does following Jesus make life easier? The Gospel of Mark was written in the late 50s, early 60s AD. This was right around the time when the persecution of Christians under the emperor Nero was intensifying. And these early Christians, they'd made a decision to follow Jesus. And Mark now, it's sort of like he's backfilling all of the information they didn't know. So he's, he's teaching them, now that you've made this decision to follow Jesus, what does that actually look like? What does it mean to actually follow Jesus? And for them, it was not easy. And so were they doing it correctly? Can you imagine being a Christian, one of the first Christians, and you're being persecuted because you're a Christian, and so you're wondering, am I doing this right? Is this how it's supposed to be? Or am I doing something wrong? Should this be easier? Was it supposed to be as difficult as it was for them? You see, in many ways, the religious, religious leaders during the time when Jesus ministered on earth, they were asking similar questions. So they read their Old Testament scriptures, and if you read through the Old Testament, there are all of these promises of victory that are associated with the coming of the Messianic King. For instance, one of the, one of the, the great Old, Old Testament passages is Genesis 49 that promises the, the Messianic King will come from the tribe of Judah, and then it says this, he ties his donkey to a vine and the colt of his donkey to the choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. Now that's poetry, so it may not make sense upon first reading, but what it's saying is that when the king finally gets there, that vineyards will be so fruitful that you actually use them as a hitching post for your donkey. In fact, you can choose your best vine, you can tie your donkey to it, who will probably damage it, and it really won't matter. That, that wine, good wine, will be so prevalent, you can use it as laundry detergent. And so here are a lot of people thinking, wow, when the Messiah comes, when the king arrives, he's going to cast off the oppression of Rome, and life is just going to be this, this time of unrivaled prosperity. So they, they were expecting the Messiah to make life easier for them. And that did not seem to be the message Jesus was preaching. This is at least some of the reason for the conflict between the religious leaders and Jesus is they're saying like, wait, where's my choice vine? Where's my wine laundry detergent? And Jesus is not saying anything about that. He's talking about taking up your cross and following him. So is life easier if you follow Jesus? I mean, how would you answer that question? Well, Mark 6 helps us answer that question by showing us some of the difficulties of following Jesus and then some of the benefits of following Jesus. So let's start with the difficulties. The chapter begins in verse 1 with Jesus and his disciples returning to his hometown. Now let's pick it up in verse 2. I'm going to be reading from the CSB this morning. It says, when the Sabbath came, he, Jesus, began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What 
is this wisdom that has been given to him, and how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. So the first difficulty of following Jesus is rejection. The people in his hometown reject Jesus. They hear him. They're astonished at the wisdom in which he teaches. They've been hearing these reports from other places about his power to to do these miracles and heal people that are sick. And they're asking themselves, well, how can this be? But instead of honestly pressing into that question, they think back to watching him as a child and they're offended by his actions. Now, why are they offended? Like, what has Jesus done to them? What is he, do, is, is he doing that somehow hurts them? Is it the manner in which he's doing it? Well, no. They're offended because of their own pride. Right? I mean, he's one of us, but how, how is he better? How is he more special? Why are people doing this with him? He grew up around here. See, pride often keeps people from coming to Jesus. And here, in spite of all that they've seen and heard, they can't bring themselves to follow this man who grew up in their community. Just this week, I was talking to my friend Morali, who grew up in India in a Hindu family. And he became a Christian while attending university there. And he told me the first couple years when he would return home to visit his parents and his siblings, they were very, very difficult. Like he was facing rejection from those that he had grown up with. Another Indian Christian in our church, Swati, told us how her mom, when she became a Christian, had to hide her Bible in, like, so that her Hindu father wouldn't find it. Because when he would find it, he would actually tear it into pieces. And then when he would leave it, her mom would pick up the pieces and she would tape them back together. And she did this for 16 years before her dad miraculously was saved by Jesus. Because following Jesus can bring rejection. Because if our, our king was rejected by those in his own hometown, then we should be aware that this might be our same fate. Now, the rejection of Jesus as Messianic king was actually prophesied centuries before these events in Mark 6. For instance, the prophet Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Another psalm, another Old Testament prophecy is Psalm 18, which is this beautiful song that celebrates the Messiah's victory, right? The part that, that so many people were looking for. But notice what it says in the same psalm, there's this prediction of the Messiah's rejection because it says in Psalm 118, 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. In other words, be, before something glorious is built upon the Messiah, he is rejected. And so those who grew up in the same area as Jesus rejected because they cannot imagine how this local man could be God's promised Messiah. He doesn't fit their picture of the Messianic king. But their rejection actually serves as further proof that he is the Messiah rejected by those he came to save. And their ultimate display of rejection would come less than three years after this moment when the crowds chanted, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus took his place on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, after suffering rejection in his hometown, Jesus sends the 12 apostles out to spread the 
the message of the inbreaking kingdom of God by casting out demons. So again, this is another sign that Jesus is Messiah, that he's come to crush the head of Satan. And Jesus gives his disciples in verse 8 some very specific instructions. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff. No bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. Now, we, not, we ought to understand Jesus is not establishing a, a pattern for ministry that includes like itinerant exorcisms and, and traveling like empty-handed. What he's describing here is this sort of unique ministry in this moment of history. Think of the 12, like 12 Paul Revere's, right? They are, they're traveling light and fast to spread the message of the conquering kingdom. So they're not looking for the best accommodations. They're not worried about where they're eating dinner. They're trusting the Lord as they herald the coming of the Messiah. Now, those instructions sound great. Oh, I can do that. I'm excited. But notice what he says Next, verse 11, well, if any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. He's warning them they will face rejection just like he experienced in his hometown. Because they preach a message of repentance, remember the first message Jesus preached in the gospel of Mark, Mark 1.15, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the message they're preaching. And because they're preaching a message of repentance, people will be offended. They'll respond with things like, how dare you tell me I need to repent? Who do you think you are? So a message of repentance that you have sinned against an almighty God and you need to cast yourself at his feet for mercy. Like that's not a message that receives easy acceptance. Like it's offensive to our arrogant, self-justifying, self-righteous sensibilities. So Jesus tells them when they face rejection, they are to shake the dust off their feet and they're to go into the next town or village. Now this shaking the dust off the feet was a symbolic act. This was often actually practiced by Jewish people as they, as they returned to their land after crossing through Gentile lands. And so what would happen is as they would cross from the Gentile land back into Israel, they would, before they stepped on the Jewish soil, they would, they would shake the unclean Gentile dust off their robes and sandals as, as so not to pollute their land. So notice what Jesus is saying. Jesus is telling his disciples that the true pagans are not Gentiles. The true pagans are anyone even within Israel, who rejects him or his messengers. Have you ever faced rejection because you're a Christian? Because you follow Jesus? Have you had a boss at work or a classmate at school, a family member over the holidays? We need to understand rejection is not only possible, but it's likely for those who follow Jesus. In fact, the bolder we are to share the message of Jesus, which is repent, the king has come, like the greater chance that someone will be offended. There will certainly be those who will not welcome us or listen to us. And in those moments, like we're not supposed to respond exactly like the disciples here. Remember, this is a unique moment in history. We're not to shake the dust off our sketchers, right? We're told instead we respond with a kindness and grace because we're prepared for this. 
We're warned all throughout the New Testament to be prepared that we will face rejection. Now, sometimes the rejection turns violent. And that's what we find next. A second difficulty of following Jesus is persecution. So the scene shifts somewhat abruptly to King Herod and the reaction he has when he hears this report about a powerful preacher out in the wilderness. Look at verse 14. King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. Still others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard it, he said, John... The one I beheaded has been raised. Right, so we learn that Herod recently executed John the Baptist. And for some reason, just think about this for a moment. For some reason, he thinks John may have risen from the dead. Now, this is the second time in two chapters that the topic of resurrection from the dead has come up. In the previous chapter... You heard this last week, right? Jesus raised a young girl from the dead, and now you have Herod, an unbelieving king, make a statement that on its face seems crazy. Right? He says, like, John the Baptist may be alive, even though he's literally seen the head of John the Baptist sitting on a platter. So even here in this passage about rejection and persecution, Mark is pointing us ahead to Jesus' ultimate victory over death. And what an important thing to remember when a wicked king wants to kill you. So having mentioned the execution of John the Baptist by Herod, Mark now flashes back to what happened. This is verses 17 through 29. It's what we heard read just a moment ago. John the Baptist had been publicly preaching against Herod's wickedness. Not only had Herod divorced his wife, but he had then married his brother's wife. And so John repeatedly preached and proclaimed how this was wrong. And Herod had this interesting reaction. He was, both, he was simultaneously angry and curious. Now Herod's new wife, Herodias, she was not curious. She was just angry. In fact, she's so angry, she keeps telling Herod, you need to put him to death, but Herod... He won't do this. Something in him knows that John is right, that he's, what he has said is true. But then everything changes when Herod gets drunk at his birthday party. His stepdaughter dances a lewd dance in front of him, and in the presence of his drunken friends, Herod, filled with lust, promises to give her anything she wants. Let's pause for just a second and consider the destructiveness, the danger of lust. Do you see here how lust dehumanizes people and it creates victims? In one moment of drunken lust, Herod agreed to something that he had refused for a lengthy period of time beforehand. And so as Christians, we must not shelter or harbor lustful thoughts. Like lust is not a victimless crime. Not only does it treat the one lusted after as something less than human, but it encourages a type of unrestrained behavior that destroys lives. Like we need to be ruthless in our elimination of lustful thoughts. 
So if you are struggling with lust today, seek help. Confess it before you leave this morning. Confess it to a brother or sister and say, I need help. Lust is most powerful in the dark. And so if you will bring it into the light today, you can watch it die. On verse 24, Herodias instructs her daughter to ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And though he instantly regrets it, he He doesn't want to lose face in front of his guests, and so he gives in. And so John the Baptist, John the Baptist, a holy and righteous man, is executed because of an exotic dance. Is it really worth it to follow Jesus? If you follow Jesus... Could you be captured or killed because the wrong person indulges in their sexual fantasies? Now, true persecution for following Christ is not something we typically face as Christians in the West. Yes, we may face rejection. Maybe it even tips the scale of mockery, but not persecution. But all around the world, our brothers and sisters understand that following Jesus may mean imprisonment or death, or even worse. And just two weeks ago, I spoke with a Russian pastor who told me about another pastor who had just been imprisoned because he refused to, to sort of follow the, the government's edicts. I recently learned that when ISIS was capturing and killing Christians in Iran, husbands and wives had to have unbelievable discussions about what they might face if ISIS beat down their door. So one Christian husband, he faced the reality that soldiers might threaten to rape his wife if he didn't deny Jesus as Lord. Can you imagine having to have that conversation with your spouse? See, we we need to see this in the text, that there are people with power who will commit unspeakable evil against Christians because they hate Jesus. If, If they will kill the forerunner of the Messiah because of a drunken, lust fueled promise, there's no limit to what else they might do. The third difficulty is found in verses 30 through 35, and that's exhaustion. In verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. Right? This is Jesus in his kindness and care saying, you guys need a break. This was exhausting. You got back from your your midnight ride through the country Now you need to rest. But it says, for many people were coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. Verse 32, so they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place, but many saw them leaving and recognized them and they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
Then he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, This place is deserted and it's already late. So if you are following Jesus closely, it means that you are pouring yourself out in love and service to others. That's simply what it means to follow Jesus. So if you're not doing that, then you're, you're not following Jesus closely. Because this is what it means to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. You're, you're pouring yourself out in love and service to others. And so like the disciples, right, you find yourself in times where you are in desperate need of rest and refreshment. But the reality is other people's needs don't always fit neatly into your schedule. So maybe today you feel like you're running on empty, and yet all around you is a crowd of people that need help. So in these moments of exhaustion, what do we see Jesus do? Well, Jesus doesn't get annoyed with people. He feels compassion for them. This, this may be one of the most convicting parts of the chapter for me, because I would be annoyed. I mean, when I'm worn out and in need of rest, especially it says there, they didn't have time to eat. I mean, I'd be hangry. And in those moments, I would stop seeing people's needs, and instead I would see them as the obstacles that are keeping me from what I need. You know, it's hard to love when you're tired. It's hard to serve when you're exhausted. Aren't you glad we serve a God who never sleeps or slumbers? That Jesus, who once grew weary because of his humanity, he now stands ready to intercede for us in our time of need, even if our time of need is 2 a.m. Now, one quick warning. Though following Jesus can be exhausting and serving others can wear us out, we do need to remember that we are not Jesus, that we are not the Messiah, and so we do need to intentionally take times for rest and refreshment. Jesus has not called any single one of us here to work and serve without ever taking a break. Right? There's a reason why healthy churches encourage their leaders to take sabbaticals. There's a reason why healthy churches carefully guard the church calendar from event overload. God doesn't need to rest, but his people need to. If you're struggling with exhaustion because you're busy serving and pouring yourself out, I want to recommend a book to you. In fact, I asked Jason to order five copies of the book this week. They're here this morning. It's a book called Zeal Without Burnout. It's a helpful little book that provides just practical guidance and wisdom to sustaining a life of serving Jesus. And so these five books will be given out today. Aaron White has the copies. So if, that, if that's you, if that resonates with you, that the, the, you're so busy pouring yourself out, it may be pouring yourself out to the kids at home or to people at work or in a class here, and you're feeling exhausted, then just ask Aaron after service. He, he's going to give all five copies out this morning. But following Jesus, when we're loving others and we're serving them and we're pouring ourselves for, out for the, them, it brings exhaustion. And so we've, we've been asking this question this morning, does following Jesus make life easier? And so far, we've seen that following Jesus brings rejection, that sometimes rejection leads to persecution, and a life of sacrificial ministry to others can lead to exhaustion. And so these are the difficulties of following Jesus. But there are benefits. And what are some of the benefits? Well, there are many, many benefits. 
and we don't have time even to survey a fraction of them. But this text, the remainder of the chapter, highlights two of them. So the first benefit to following Jesus in this text is that Jesus is working through us. Jesus is working through us. And so we see this clearly in verses 30 through 43 in the feeding of the 5,000. So the disciples, after this coming back from the trip, they haven't slept. Jesus says, you need to rest, you're tired. They haven't eaten. And all they've done is they've sort of crowd the people because they've, they, they, they've got reached the shore ahead of them. Jesus started preaching to them. Here they are. They're exhausted. They have nothing to feed the people. And so they go to Jesus. We can assume it's late in the day. And they say, Jesus, can you send them away? Can you, can you send them out to the, the surrounding villages so they can get something to eat? Verse 36. And Jesus responds in a way that I'm sure felt really unhelpful to them at the moment in verse 37 when he says, why don't you guys feed them? Right? And the disciples, they're, they're, they're just like us. They're practical people. They're, they look around each other. They, they know they don't have money to, to buy enough food for 5,000 men plus the women and children. They don't have the logistics to do so. There aren't Chick-fil-A's nearby like like, there's just no solution to this problem. Yet Jesus says, why don't you guys take care of it? All they have are five small loaves of bread and two small dried fishes, which sounds awful for anyone, much less for thousands of people. Verse 39. Then Jesus instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and the two fish. Looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Now in this miraculous act, we find allusions to events and writings in Israel's past. Jesus stands there as the true shepherd, and he has led his people to lie down in green pastures, and there he has provided all they need. Each one eats and is satisfied. Jesus here stands as a new Moses who delivers miraculous bread so that all the people are fed, but he is a greater Moses because he will lead his people all the way into the promised land. But in this act, we also see a contrast between two kings, a contrast between King Herod and between King Jesus, King Herod uses people for his selfish pleasure and enjoyment. King Jesus serves people for their good. King Herod sits in opulent banquet rooms and King Jesus meets people in the wilderness. King Herod feasts with nobles while King Jesus invites those who are weak and weary to find rest and refreshment with him. And aren't you grateful that your hope is not in an earthly ruler? but in Jesus who rules over heaven and earth. Jesus, notice, includes his disciples in this miracle. He did not need to include them. He was quite capable of handling this himself. If you can take five loaves and two fishes and multiply them into enough food to feed thousands, you can also get it to them without much trouble. But notice he includes his disciples. Not only does he have them seat the people, not only does he have them pass out the bread, but when it's finished, he has them collect 12 baskets. 12 baskets for 12 apostles. 
right? 12 baskets for 12 tribes. Jesus is showing his disciples as they collect each one a full basket that all of God's people will be cared for by Jesus. That there will not be a single one of them that is overlooked or forgotten. In this moment on the mountain, we learn an important truth about the kingdom of Jesus. In the kingdom of Jesus, power is used to serve and bless others, not take from them. The kingdoms of men, like the kingdom of Herod, are characterized by grasping for power and once in power, using it to make your life and the lives of those you like better. But the kingdom of Jesus is about using whatever power God gives you to serve those who most need it. How do you use the power, authority, and resources God has given you? Are you like Jesus? Do you look for ways to bless others and serve those in need? Even when exhausted, do you put the interests of others before your own? Now we get this reminder of Jesus' power and his willingness to feed us each week when we gather as his people. Right? You look over here and you see the bread and the cup and this testifies to Jesus' work in his people. In a few moments, as your brothers and sisters eat the bread, they are saying the same thing to you. They're saying to you that the same Jesus who took five loaves of bread and fed 5,000 people is feeding them today. That Jesus is sustaining the one who follows him. That his bread never runs out. That there is always leftovers. And so the first benefit of following Jesus is that Jesus works in and through us. But let me give you one more benefit. The second benefit of following Jesus is that Jesus is walking with us. So after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee in a boat. While we're told in verses 45 and 46, he finds a deserted spot on the mountain to pray. This is not the first time in the Gospel of Mark we've seen Jesus pray. In fact, it's not the first time he's prayed in moments of exhaustion. And surely there's a lesson there for us. I know I'm rebuked by this passage because the more frantic life is and the more exhausted I feel, the less I pray. And so let's encourage each other to pray, especially when life is exhausting. Jesus shows us this. it is the single most important thing we can do. But notice what happens next to the disciples. Verse 48, he saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea and wanted to pass by them. Now, the sea is a character in the gospel story. You need to understand that, particularly the gospel of Mark, but it's, it's, it's a character. It's not just a geographical location because the sea is a picture, really throughout the Bible, of a chaotic, disordered world. The disciples then, think about them, they are battling weariness, exhaustion, frustration in this world. And that's what's being symbolically pictured for us by the disciples on a boat in the midst of the sea fighting the waves and the wind. I mean, do you ever feel that way? Like this, this is happening to them. This chaotic sea threatens to overwhelm this, this disordered life this broken world is overwhelming them. 
even though they're following Jesus. In fact, we could maybe say it seems to be happening because they're following Jesus. Like in the words of Tolkien, the disciples are butter spread over too much bread. And notice who isn't there with them. Jesus isn't. Do you think they notice that? Do you think maybe while they're in the boat on this chaotic sea and they're exhausted and they're frustrated and they're anxious and they're overwhelmed that they're looking around and saying, where is Jesus in all this? Why isn't he with us? Are we going to drown? Are we going to die? Does he even care? I mean, those are the questions they ask. Last time they were out on a boat in a sea, in a storm, and Jesus was with them that time. What do you think they're saying? What do you think they're thinking this time when he's not even around? Well, Jesus does see them, doesn't he? And Jesus walks out on top of the water toward them. I don't even know what to say about this miracle. It speaks for itself. I mean, certainly it shows that Jesus is Lord over the chaos of the sea. But notice this. This, I think, is fascinating. Verse 48 says that Jesus was going to pass by them. Now, an initial reading that seems cold or callous, why is he going to pass by them? Don't interpret verse 48 as Jesus is trying to avoid them. This is a reference to the time when God passed by Moses. When God passed by Moses, what he was doing was revealing himself and his glory to Moses in a way he had never seen. Jesus is revealing his glory, his power, his authority to his disciples in a unique way, just as God did to Moses. And just as God told Moses to call him, I am this is the same phrase Jesus uses when his disciples crowd in fear. Look at verse 49. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. Pause for a second. See, this is unique. They haven't seen something like this before, even in their time with Jesus. This is something supernatural. And they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. And immediately he spoke with them and said, Have courage. It is I, don't be a phrase. The phrase, it is I, is just two words in the original language, the words I am. But Jesus passes by them, revealing his glory, and he says, don't be afraid, I am. Now we're told in verse 51, that the disciples were astounded at him, even though, verse 52 says, before this their hearts were hardened to him. We get a sense of what they might have been saying in that boat without Jesus. Their hearts are hardened, but all of a sudden they see his glory and they're astounded at him. We're supposed to see here that the disciples were like those original Israelites who witnessed the glory of I am as he parted the waters of the Red Sea, as he provided miraculous bread in the wilderness. But instead of belief, the Israelites hardened their hearts against him. But here, 
as the disciples whose hearts were hardening see his glory displayed as he passes by them in the waters, their unbelief melts into astonished faith. So there was something about the powerful presence of Jesus with them that did more than that miracle of feeding the 5,000 could do. Now, as you continue to move forward in Mark's gospel, you will see the disciples still don't fully understand who Jesus is. That their understanding of Jesus and their faith in Jesus come bit by bit. I think that's encouraging for me personally, for me as a parent, for me as a pastor, to see that faith doesn't normally come in one moment but it grows through time, often through personal failure. This passage concludes in verses 53 through 56 with people, especially the sick, flocking to Jesus. So people are coming to him. Many of them are coming simply because they want something from him. They're coming with the hope, right, that Jesus is going to make my life easier. So I'm coming with something that makes my life harder. I've heard Jesus can make my life easier. And some of them will get exactly what they want, an easier life, and then they will leave Jesus. And there will be others who, when they encounter Jesus, will see his glory. They will experience his presence, and they will continue to follow him. We see throughout this gospel that people often come to Jesus in times of trouble, whether because of hunger fear, or sickness. And if we're supposed to ask this question as readers, what will they do once their stomach is full? What will they do once their fear is calmed? What will they do once their health is restored? Have they come to Jesus only to make their life easier? So does following Jesus make life easier? I think the biblical answer is both no and yes. No, it does not always make it easier. So if your life is hard and you're following Jesus right now, be assured that's often the case, right? Following Jesus may bring rejection from friends and family, may bring persecution from the state, it may bring exhaustion from pouring yourself out to those who are ungrateful. Jesus went to a cross and he died on that cross, so following Jesus might mean a cross for you or me. Nowhere does Jesus promise you that all of your problems evaporate the moment you start following him. I was talking with one man from our congregation who told me how God has really been working in his life over the past year, that he feels in some ways like he is understanding and embracing the gospel for the very first time. He told him this. He said, I know that following Jesus will be the hardest thing I ever do. And he's right. Because following Jesus means dying to yourself, purposefully and intentionally crucifying your selfish desires, seeking God's will instead of your own, serving his kingdom instead of building one for yourself. And nothing is harder than that. This dear brother said all of this with a smile on his face and with joy in his eyes. Yes, Following Jesus is hard, but following Jesus is worth it. 
Seeing Jesus work in and through him makes all of the difficulty seem trivial. And the more he says that he understands the kindness and grace of Jesus, the more he learns to trust Jesus, the more he experiences the presence of Jesus in his life, the more he believes Jesus is Lord over the chaotic sea, and he's the good shepherd who feeds his sheep, the sweeter life gets. Are you following Jesus? And if so, why? Why are you following Jesus? Do you remember just a couple weeks ago when Jason preached chapter 4? A parable Jesus tells about seed and soil. The seed is the gospel. The soil is the human heart. And Jesus said there are many different kinds of of soil, and the way you can tell which kind of soil it is is to see how it responds to the seed. To see how it responds to the truth about Jesus. So what kind of soil in the parable, what kind of soil follows Jesus simply to make life easier and more comfortable? And what kind of soil follows Jesus because they understand he is the true king, the Messiah, the Son of God, come to save sinners who rules over the chaotic sea. What kind of soil are you? Will you pray with me?